Well, well, well. New Life East. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> My name's Brett. I'm one of the pastors at New Life. I'm over at Friday night uh, serving there. Um, I'm glad to see all of you this morning. It's been a been a minute, a month and a half or so since I last got to see you. I'm so glad to see all of you this morning. We're coming in for a landing this morning with the Book of the Twelve, or it's frequently called the Minor Prophets. The Book of the Twelve is what the ancient church called it. Um, so go ahead and turn to the very last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. It's the only Italian prophet in the, in the, in the Bible. It's Malachi. And I want some spaghetti with my... Uh, yeah, that's my joke. That's my joke for this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Okay, uh, so go ahead and turn to Malachi this morning. Um, we're going to be there. If you can find a Matthew, it's one book before there. Um, we're going to read the first three verses in just a minute, but uh, I need to tee us up and set us up for framing it. And before I do that, I need the Spirit to um, set all of this sermon up. Um, so, Spirit, we come before you this morning and we say, speak. We're not interested in, um, we're not interested in human words. We don't need them. We've heard everything that human beings have to say, and it is vanity, vanity, um, especially me. And so, um, Holy Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would come and speak gospel this morning. We ask that you would drown fears in this place. May your love invade and reign and course through our veins and get into our hands and our feet and infect this city with your kingdom, life that is going to reign forever and ever. Grant it because this is beyond anything that any of us can do in a, on a Sunday morning. So, Lord, we ask that you'd come and speak because your children are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen. All right, let's set the scene. The year is 430 B.C. Over in the far east... You've got uh, Confucius, who has just died a handful of decades before now. And over in the far west, a little play called Oedipus Rex. We're not going to talk about it this morning, but it's being, Sophocles, uh, is being performed for the first time. And little baby Plato has actually just been born in Athens in a city struggling with plague. And between these two um, poles, right kind of in the middle on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea in, in Jerusalem. We've got citizens struggling um, to rebuild their city. They've kind of settled in and they're wrestling with really big questions. Their grandparents, you see, had maybe been born in Babylon, but their grandparents, when they were really little, their grandparents had arrived back in Jerusalem to help resettle the area, and their parents had lived through, so the children of the grandparents had lived through like a number of cultural revolutions. They they'd remember perhaps when the great 
scholar priest Ezra had like regrounded everybody in the tradition of Moses and devotion to their God Yahweh. And then like the great governor Nehemiah, he had rebuilt the, the city's infrastructure and walls. And then the previous governor, Zerubbabel, he had like rebuilt the great temple of Solomon. You know, that it had been torched by war 150 years before, before this. Um, that's about as far away as the burning of Atlanta is from us right now in the U.S. Uh, Civil War. Um, where we have boomers and Gen Xers and Millennials and Gen Z, they had resettlers and reformers and rebuilders. And, but then this generation right here in 430 BC, like, they're just a little like, can we just call ourselves the exhausted? <laughs> you know, we're just tired. <laughs> Can anyone relate? Like, it doesn't matter. We're, we're just tired. We can't even come up with a clever R to go with the rest of these things. They're just asking questions, really big questions like this. Like, who am I? Who are we? <laughs> what, are, what are we supposed to be doing here? I mean, the, 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 the city's rebuilt and, and the templing is templing. It's doing its thing. And uh, like we've all settled back in, I guess, our home is what, like it's the only life I've ever known. But in this great big world from, uh, from Athens to the traditions of Confucius, what are we supposed to be doing. I mean, it's all well and good, I guess, that like our parents and our grandparents like followed the, the way of Yahweh. I guess that's fine. And we, we're still going through the motions. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, we still bring animals to the temple for sacrifice. I mean, not good ones. We don't bring our good animals to the, to the temple. I mean, they're just, the, we bring the gross ones, <laughs> the ones puking and gangrene and, you know, stuff like that. We, we, you're just going to kill them. <laughs> we're, we're going through the motions, but like, it's all well and good that this whole thing's going, but we haven't seen any miracles. We haven't. So we didn't walk through the sea. The, the seas didn't split for us. We didn't experience deliverance in battle. We, we haven't heard the word of the Lord through any prophets. This is the attitude that those in 430 BC are like, uh, we'll call it that, just as a nice round number, um, we need to paint this picture of them to help us recognize um, something that may be really encouraging to all of us in the room this morning, that hard questions about identity, meaning, and purpose are nothing new. They're nothing new. And so if you are wrestling with those sorts of things, of like, what is the world? Who am I? What's going on? Like, be encouraged. The people of God have actually wrestled through these things generation after generation. And, um, and I think they can give us some wisdom for appreciating this. I, um, I grew up in Georgia. And um, my, my grandparents had a, a lake house in the North Georgia mountains, kind of Blue Ridge area. And I would spend um, like weeks there during the, the summer. And I can remember like one season, these questions pop up at certain seasons of life um, more than others, kind of juncture points in our lives. And I remember kind of graduating high school and early college and I would slip out in like the dead of night and I would go down to the lake, to the, to the dock, and I would d be dangling my, my, my my toes in the water, and I had the stars canopied over me. And it sounds more romantic when I'm describing it than what it actually was, because I mean, I was just like gazing up at the stars, and I really, truly was just like, who am I? 
Like, the, the whole course has been set for me up to this point, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to be in this world and what I'm supposed to be doing in this world. And some of us have walked into the room, um, maybe it, it is high school or college, that sort of time, but many of us have walked into the room with the exact same questions because we're at a juncture point. Um, it could just be the fact that we just lived through the year 2020. Oh, don't mention it. The year that will not be named. Um, then we lived through like crazy counter, like cultural revolutions ourselves. And technology is just changing all the time. They're talking about augmented reality and virtual reality and artificial intelligence. Blah, 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 blah. And, or maybe for some of us, like we've got kids that have just like entered into a new phase of life. And we ourselves are like, what don't? What do I do now with all my time? Maybe you just like are navigating the waters of retirement and you're just like, this is so disorienting. Or the relationship perhaps just ended. Or a family, something happened with your family and it's just whatever the reason, like we feel adrift. We feel like we're just like going through the motions and we find ourselves asking the questions that the Israelites did in the year 430 BC. Like, in this great big world that I'm in, it's all overwhelming. I feel lost. I feel confused. Like, who am I and what am I supposed to be doing? Enter the Italian prophet Malachi and his spaghetti. <laughs> I think he can help us answer some of these questions this morning, um, really kind of by helping uh, us address three things. He's going to help us ask the question, what does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be lost? We talk about that in church sometimes. What does it mean to be lost? Who is lost? Who are the lost? And number three, like, how are the lost found? How are the lost found? And so um, a tired generation wants to hear from the prophet of Yahweh. Well, buckle up, 430 BC, tired generation, exhausted ones. Here we go. Malachi, we're right on time, by the way. Malachi, chapter 1, starting in verse, or chapter 1, starting in verse 1, a prophecy. The word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. That's my last time I'm going through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. This is the word of the Lord will end on desert jackals. And everyone said, thanks be to God. So the book of Malachi um, is structured as a series of confrontations between God and his people. You can actually see it right here as the book is beginning. Verse 2, I have loved you, says Yahweh. How? The people shoot back. How have you loved us? It feels like we're like watching something, like the beginning of a lover's quarrel, like we're on the, the fly on the wall or something. Something that we, we, maybe I shouldn't be here. Why am I watching this? Maybe it's like one of those television shows, you know, those trashy television shows that none of us have ever watched, where they bring people onto like a stage like this and, you, and they start talking about deeply personal things and fighting in front of each other and somehow the crowd starts, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> well, if you love me, I can't see it. And somehow somebody ends up like some bizarre situation by the that's a bit the way this book feels it's like just confrontation after confrontation between these lovers and we're launched straight into a book where the like God and his people 
I have loved you even though you've despised my name. Uh, Verse 6 is what it says in chapter 1. You're insulting my temple by bringing in the most gross animals to sacrifice. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Gangrene. And everyone in the crowd, you can't believe that. You're you're acting, chapter 2, verse 11, you're acting like a cheating spouse. Chapter 3, verse 8, you're acting like a bandit. You're robbing from me. But make no mistake, and the entire audience melts as they watch this. Make no mistake, I have loved you. And I still love you. The opening of this book is kind of famous, actually. It's uh, God looking at this current generation of Israelites living in Jerusalem that's been rebuilt and saying, of course I've loved you. Of course I have. Just look around. You're still here. Like the family of Esau, those Edomites, they've been like wiped off the map. They've been blown away by by other armies. But the family of Jacob, you're still here, is what he's saying. We've uh, seen that the prophets, through the series, the prophets use poetic language. They speak with poetry a lot of times. So I just need to clarify as a side note right here that hating Esau has nothing to do with Esau, the literal person, like the actual individual. He's actually the good guy by the end of the story, if you read Genesis. Um, And his predestined eternal destiny. That's not what hating, for those who have ears, that's not what hating Esau is about. This is a poetic way of talking about God chose one grandson of Abraham, chose Jacob and not his twin brother Esau to be the conduit through which he was going to bless the entire world. This poetic language, and they carry, it carries like profound emotion. I did not choose Esau. I chose you guys. You guys I love you guys, you mess of a people. This, and yet this exhausted generation, this tired generation just cannot feel it, cannot hear it, cannot believe it, cannot see it. And, and so they feel, we feel, adrift, lost, confused. I want to suggest this morning that um, Malachi is cluing us in to like a fundamental reality about the universe with the opening of his book. He's saying this. He's saying that doubting the endless love of God is the root of all lostness. That's what lostness ultimately comes down to, is you're doubting the endless love of God, that it's, it's you I rescued, it's you I want to praise and sing, I want you, <laughs> this body, this blood is for you, we can endure really painful things in our lives, 
I've been through like painful things, long stretches of time even, like years. Um, But the pain jumps to another level when we get turned around, disoriented, and lost. It's like we're wandering in the middle of a fog and we've like dropped our compass. Or we can't find the North Star or something. That North Star is that we are endlessly loved. Even in what you're going through, even in that, his love never runs out on you. That's the the root of all lostness is when we start to every scheme of the enemy is aimed at making you doubt the endless, eternal, unending love of God for you. That is... But the deepest pain that I have experienced in my life has not come through um, my body, though that has hurt sometimes, but it's come through my, like my soul. It's been the moments when after the phone call arrived or after the bottom fell out or as I'm sitting at the bedside of my, my loved one, it was my, my, baby, my second baby girl, um, all of a sudden doubt of God's love came creeping in. It's like the serpent just is snaking down gently and quietly asking, has God really loved you? Has he really loved you? And I start asking myself the same question. Like, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? I can, sure, I can look back over my life and I can see how you carried me through seasons of wilderness and exile. And sure, you put me back together after my wife left me and betrayed me and left me and destroyed my life. And sure, you dug me out of debt. And sure, you've been building the muscles of my little girl that I never thought would, <laughs> I wondered if she would ever actually walk. And I, and I know about my house, sure. And I know about my job and I I get daily bread, but it's like at the drop of a hat, I can find myself asking, how have you loved me, God? How have you loved me? I don't don't even actually have to be in another wilderness season or in exile. I can just start like imagining one. Like I can just start like anticipating what might be. And I start saying, how have you loved me? I mean, I haven't seen any miracles in my life. And in my moments of clarity, it's like I can hear God whispering, you can't see most miracles in the same way that a fish can't see the water, Brett. You can't, like, you, what do you mean, oh tired generation, that you haven't seen any miracles? You're living in one! Every single day, the mercies of God are washing over you, even on those terrible days and those seasons where the enemy is killing and stealing and destroying. The mercies of God are deeper still, washing in like the tide. And so it's really, even after we've settled back in our home, like we're no longer actually in wilderness or exile, it's really easy for us, like the people of God in 430 BC, to get turned around, confused, and lost. The question is less about who is lost, and it's really more a question about how am I still lost? 
What are the areas of my life where I, like, am, I do not believe the unending love of God for me? And as the book of the Twelve ends, as the final prophet of Israel's tradition speaks, it's easy to lose sight of the startling answer to the question of our second point, who are the lost? Well, the prophets end with the people of God as the lost ones. That's the remarkable story that is at the end of the Hebrews, the Old Testament. It's the hope of the world. Those blessed, the conduit, the blessed to be a blessing people, the elected and chosen people who will show the entire world God's endless love, the remnant that has been carried through Babylon and exile. They are the lost ones. You haven't loved us. You haven't loved us. And it's not just the commoners. It's not just like the everyday folk who are believing this. It's actually the leaders. It's the elite. It's the priests themselves that are hopelessly lost. They're, I mean, they're the ones who are accepting these cartloads of disgusting, gangrene, barfing animals. You know, it's like, oh, well, just bring it in. Come on. You, sure, why not? We'll wipe a little muck off the altar and then we'll kill it. None of this really matters anyway. We're just going through the motions. And so Yahweh is talking to these priests through the prophet Malachi. And he says, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Behold, this is the priest he's talking to, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction. Everyone say instruction. Instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity, this first priest, like those of Levi, um, did. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction. Torah is actually the word right here. This is the second time it's showing up. Should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord, of Yahweh, of armies. But you have turned away from the way and caused many to stumble by your Torah, by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of armies. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your Torah, in your instruction. So it's like Yahweh saying, all of these cartloads of these wagons carting in, these gross sacrifices, well, this whole priesthood is going to get carted away just like them because they think that everything is a joke. They think the temple, the sacrifices... The law, the, law, the law, Torah, instruction itself from God. They think all of this is a joke. They were supposed to be, verse 6, they were supposed to be guiding people in true Torah, but instead their Torah, their instruction, is causing people to stumble. Last year, my uh, daughter, my oldest daughter, Daphne, was learning to ride a bike, and she needed Torah. 
She needed instruction on how to, how to do this, how to, you know, pedal and balance and, you know, generally just ride a bike. And so it would have been really despicable of me. It would have been really treacherous of me if I, as the one giving Torah instruction, would have said, well, no, so what you do, first of all, you take off your shoes because those pedals right there, they're actually really supposed to hurt while you're pedaling on this thing. No pain, no gain, you know, you should remember that. And then those hands, no, 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 it's actually you take those and you grip it right in the middle right here. Yep, right in the middle, you got it, because um, that's the best place to end it. No, you, that's, that's called a helmet, but no, silly. You take that off of your head. You see how it's shaped a little like a bowl? Well, what this is for is this is, a, it's shaped like a bowl because we fill it with candy, and then we eat the candy on our way to the hospital a little later. Like, <laughs> That's macabre, isn't it? I would strike that illustration entirely. But that would have been really horrible if you had been if the one giving instruction is actually giving the opposite, and that's what the priests are doing right here. They're the ones who should be instructing people on how not to go into disaster, and yet they're leading people into disaster. It's the people of God, even the priests of God, who are hopelessly lost as the prophets end. And Malachi actually names this explicitly. It's the people of God who are lost. On the back half of the book of Malachi, Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return, (laughs) shuv, return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? How are we to return? It's not, hear me, it's not the world out there that's lost according to the end of the Old Testament. It's not them that God is talking to. It's his own people who are lost. God is calling the lost, his own people, to return, to come back, to repent. If you will just open your eyes, then the light of the world will return to your eyes. It's already... But truth be told, and this is the tragedy at the end of the Old Testament, we don't know how. How do we return? We're often like turned around and lost and confused and we're doubting the endless love of God and, and secretly we're saying, no, I, it, 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 it's not really that I don't want to return. It's actually, I don't like wandering around in the fog. I just don't know how to do it. And this is the way that the prophets end. Actually, I take that back. It, gets, it actually gets a little bit worse. Because in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, You have wearied Yahweh with your words. You say, how have we wearied him? Well, I'll tell you. By saying, everyone who does evil is good. In the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or you ask, where is the God of justice? So the prophets don't just end with us being hopelessly lost. They actually end with God being absolutely exhausted. 
wearied. You have wearied Yahweh. Nobody sees the miracle that we're all swimming in. We're all just confused and hurting and wondering, why do bad things happen to good people? And maybe, middle of verse 17, maybe it's just because God is actually a jerk. (laughs) He likes evildoers. Or maybe it's because God was never actually really there at all. Where's the God of justice? It's everyone's lost, and God is utterly exhausted. And here's the good news of how we get found. Do you know what God says in all of his weariness? What will a weary God say? Very next verse, chapter 2, 17, goes into 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is God talking. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of of Levi. Oh, the priests, those dung-covered priests are going to get purified and refined them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. And so God is promising that he himself is going to come to the temple, and some kind of messenger is going to prepare his way, and when he comes, he's going to scrub everybody clean, even verse 3, even those filthy dung-covered priests. He's going to, it's going to, verse 2, it's going to be like bleach on a fabric, or it's going to be like metal in a fire, and the lost are not going to stay lost. God finds this entirely unacceptable. Even in all of his weariness, he finds it completely unacceptable. The filthy are not going to stay filthy, not because you're returning to me ultimately, but because I am going to return to you and I am going to burn down your death. I am going to burn you down to salvation. I'm going to burn you down to joy. And I'm going to set you ablaze with life is what God is saying. And so can I give some encouragement to a tired generation? None of us ever return to God. None of us ever do. No one knows how to return. Not even the pastors on New Life staff know how to do it. But God is returning to us is what we're invited to believe. God, we could say it this way. God is always returning to us before we are returning to God. That's the good news. The light of the world will return to your eyes if you'll only open well, Crap, your eyes are blind. Okay, and so the light of the world becomes one of us so that he can put his hand on the blind and give sight. Many of us in the room um, feel like, perhaps you've come in and you're like, I don't even, shouldn't even be in church because I have wearied God. Let's run with that for just a second. You've wearied God. Okay, Let's buy that. My children have wearied me this week. (laughs) Truth be told, two different nights this week, um, my oldest and my youngest have woken up screaming in the middle of the night. One of uh, our youngest was having night terrors, and our oldest has a loose tooth that I think she bit down on or something. So screaming, (laughs) middle of the night. And then 
okay, our house isn't burning down and the adrenaline fades and the weariness creeps back in. And do you know what a parent does in all their weariness? I held them. I stayed with them. I'm tired, but they were screaming. I, I'm right here, is what I told them. I'm right here. I've got you. You will, like, with our younger one, I actually climbed in the bed with her and, like, pulled the blanket over me because though they weary me, that weariness cannot and does not hold a candle to my love for them. And so what does God do in all of his weariness? Well, I'll tell you. He takes on flesh and he allows his cousin, his messenger, to prepare his way before him. John the Baptist announced he's coming and he returns to us. What does our weary God do? Well, God comes and he heals the sick. He makes the lame to walk. He washes the treacherous and makes them clean. Salvation comes to Zacchaeus's house. He finds the lost and the lonely. He leaves the night. He tells stories about this. He leaves the 99 and he finds you, the one, because he loves you. And even though he's wearied, he has to find you. And he heals the sick and he saves sinners. And when we in all of our wretched lostness when we despise the weary God who has come among us because we secretly actually like our lostness just a little bit and we spit on him. You know what our weary God does? He turns the other cheek. When our weary God is tortured by us, he speaks and prays forgiveness over all of us. And when we finally extinguish the light of the world by nailing him to a tree, what does our weary God do? Well, our weary God opens the grave, breaks the tomb, and raises the dead. And then he finds the treacherous on the beach. And he says, can I offer you a fish for breakfast? I'd like you to have a meal with me. Though we slay him, still he lives, still he loves, still he climbs into bed with us. And so I want to tell you right here, right now, in this moment, this morning, as you feel that burning in your heart, that desire for God, that desire to return that's in you right now, that is actually the beginning of your return. That's actually God at work drawing you back to himself. That's not you, that's God. You can celebrate, that's That's the gentle work of the Spirit of God, beloved There's this dear saintly man, Brother Roger, who says, right at the depth of the human condition lies the longing for a presence, the silent desire for a communion. We could add the ache to return. And let us never forget that the simple desire for God is already the beginning of faith. And so if you are lost and confused This morning, you are invited to trust that you will not be forever. You will no longer be called exhausted. You will no longer be called tired. You will be a returner. There's that R that we were looking for earlier. We finally found it. You will be whole. You will be complete. 
You will be fulfilled, not because of your faithfulness, but because God is faithful to you. And even if you feel like the world is burning down around you, you are invited to trust that God, too, is in the flames. And he uses all things to make you alive. And so, as the band's coming back up, let's answer those questions. Questions of who am I? Well, I am endlessly loved. Who, what am I supposed to be doing in the world? Well, I get to love. That's what I get to do. I get to seek the good of others because God's already seeking my good and he's going to make sure that I am okay. This is the essence of God's instruction according God's Torah according to Jesus. He says, love is what fulfills the law. Love is what all the prophets and the law hang on. I overcomplicate the story when I make it about more than love. And so this week, we're invited to reflect on what am I supposed to be doing? Well, number one, how can I open myself up to the love of God this week? How can I do it? What's it look like? Can I, maybe it's singing in my car at the top of my lungs, praise music. Maybe it's finding quiet space where I can just breathe the Jesus prayer in silence. Maybe it's opening the scriptures. Maybe it's just doing something that you love, that you haven't done in a long time, and breathing out gratitude to God that you're alive and you get to do it. And who can you show love to this week? You are not called to love the human race. You are called to love that human being right in front of you is what you are called to do. That, that friend, that spouse, that child, that coworker, that client, that enemy, how can you work for their good? I often feel most lost and confused when I lose or confuse God's Torah, his instruction. And he's inviting me to love, to be loved, and to love in return. Don't overcomplicate it. So you're invited to stand this morning. I'd invite you to join me in this prayer of confession as we recognize the ways that we have failed to believe God's endless love the ways that we have not loved those around us, it will not always be so. We will be filled with love. Our love will be endless because God's love for us is endless. We will be found. And so I invite you to join me in prayerfully acknowledging this before God, saying, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen.
and amen and hear the gospel this morning. You are forgiven. You are loved endlessly, and we can join in the celebration that will never end. We can join in that celebration right now. Let's sing together, my friends.
would you respond? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise to the Lord our God. Would you do that this morning? Would you give God praise in your heart? Thank you, Jesus, that you let us return to you. You invite us to return to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the mystery of our faith together this morning. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, we give you thanks and praise this morning. For some of us today, even holding these elements in our hand is us returning to you for the first time in a long time, and I thank you that you call us back. God, we repent of the things that have kept us from you, that have kept us from returning to you, Lord. We are sorry. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. That's you. Would you take the bread and eat it? Would you take the cup together? only respond in worship to what God has done for us. Let's lift our voices and sing the doxology together this morning. Would you lift your hands and receive the benediction this morning? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he make his countenance shine upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. How wonderful to worship with you this morning. Would you stop by Connect Central on your way out? See Jenny and join Care Portal, join our response team. Be safe this afternoon. Go in peace.